Hi on the Dresser listeners. This year in 2018, we are starting to expand our reach. So we'd really appreciate it if you took a minute to go to wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. We'd like you to rate, review, and share. It really helps us grow and build our listenership. And we'd like to continue to bring great content not only to you, but to more people. So take a second, rate us, review us, and share us on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is On The Dresser. We are your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. We call our special brand of knowledge, Edutitillation. I'm Danny Cruz. I'm Vanessa Carlisle. And we are bringing you conversations that are led by sex workers, queer people, sex educators. This is a very special collection of voices. We're really glad that you've joined us today. If you're interested in some of the other conversations that we're having, um, we've got over 50 other shows up on On The Dresser. You can listen to them on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, anywhere where you get your podcasts. We're working on Spotify. Please do rate, review, and share. Okay, so today on On The Dresser, uh, everyone's favorite topic right now is going to be coming up, which is Pornography. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I was like, do we insert like a clapping sound, an audio? I don't know. Anyway, pornography is in the news a lot. We're going to be talking about pornography. We've got an interview with Chris Jaisik, who also was a performer in pornography for many years, and his porn name was Danny Wild. He's written a book called Body to Job. It's a memoir. It's a, it's a couple of stories. It's a really cool book that's just been released by Rare Bird Press. So I got a chance to interview him. So that's coming up. But before we get to the interview, we really, really missed you and we want to give you some help. is that New Hampshire uh, just had a bill, HB 287, that passed the House and is now in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And this bill, it's a little bit confusing, so I got to be very careful how I say it, because this bill is not actually about directly decriminalizing sex work. The bill is about establishing a committee to study and consider the question of decriminalization. So it's not a legalization bill, which of course a, a lot of people get confused about the difference between legalizing prostitution and decriminalizing prostitution. We have uh, another podcast called Laws of Sex Work and Human Trafficking with Corey Cordero that came out uh, last year that has a more lengthy breakdown of what this means if you're interested to know the difference. But real quickly, legalizing prostitution allows the state to tax it, regulate it. If you think about places where marijuana has been legalized, how we're seeing brand new industries of, you know, regulating the shops and all, there's all of this new policy that gets written once something's legalized. So legalizing prostitution would then involve sex work more deeply with state regulation. Decriminalizing prostitution is about removing the criminal penalties and that's it. It does not get more regulated. It does not get more embedded in the state via health codes or 
you know, site violations or things like that. So um, investigating decriminalization is a really positive step because for the most part, sex worker rights organizations argue that decriminalization is the best option for sex workers. It tends to be what keeps us the safest. Um, so anyway, there's more on that on other podcasts if you're interested. But I just think this is really fascinating. It's like the bill to explore the concept of decriminalization is receiving tons of blowback. Like people are really mad about it. They don't even want to pass a bill to explore the option of decriminalization. The governor has said he'll veto it if it comes anywhere near him. Wow. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a fight for the right to even talk about decriminalization that's happening mm-hmm. right now in New Hampshire. If you're interested in getting involved and you're one of those people who has the energy to make these phone calls, I really love, I love you. I love you for that. Um, the number for the governor's office is 603-271-2121. And I encourage you, call the New Hampshire government office and tell them, go ahead and investigate decriminalization. Pass HB 287. It's really important that we have these conversations. Yeah, if you're, uh, like we've mentioned before, if you're a millennial um, and you live in the state of New Hampshire, you can also use the service called ResistBot. The website you can go to is resist.bot, but essentially you text RESIST to 50409, or you can use the encrypted app Telegram to send this message as well. And the app will help you send a letter to your representative on any issue. Uh, So if you live in New Hampshire, especially, you can use, and you don't like to call, you can text and use ResistBot to to give your support for HB 287. (laughs) Yeah, let's at least make it legal to have the conversation, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Similar things are happening in Hawaii, where part of the um, decriminalization conversation revolves around getting sex workers to the table in legislation that involves them. Yeah, we talked about that with Stacy Swim when we had her on a few weeks ago, yeah? Yeah, there's been some work happening in, in Hawaii, especially this last month. And it's just, I want to just make it clear that we're highlighting these fights because they're not getting covered by the media very much. They're not things that you're going to be reading about in, in mainstream news. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're getting a lot of repression. Like mm-hmm. people are finding it very, very difficult to even have these conversations in yeah. the halls of justice, right? Yeah. Um, because the fear mongering, the, the sense that, you know, that all children are being endangered by sexuality, like that sort of intense belief that sexuality endangers people is it's so rampant and it's so much a part of how our laws work, um, that having conversations about the decriminalization of sex work is, is an uphill battle still. It's very, very difficult to, to get those conversations going. Mm-hmm. In that same vein of having difficult conversations about the harms of sexuality against children, in the past month, there's been five different states that have started to turn up the heat on porn a little bit. The most notable was this week in Florida, where some legislators thought that there were other topics that should be talked about, other problems that should be dealt with in Florida, but a Representative by the name of Ross Spano introduced House Resolution 157, which does nothing but call porn a public health risk. Now, when he first introduced the bill, the language used was that 
porn was a public health crisis. But apparently the first committee it went to changed that language from crisis to risk. Uh, and that came up during a very tense exchange on the, the floor of the legislature in Florida. And I'm going to play a little bit of that for you. Thank you, Chair Spano, for bringing this resolution forward. I'm curious as to the prioritization of this bill and how urgent of an issue this is. Has anyone ever been killed as a result to the health implications of pornography? Um, I couldn't tell you, but I, but I don't know how that's relevant. In terms of the, in terms of the importance of the issue, um, ask a mom, ask a mom with teenage boys how relevant the issue is. Thank you for that reminder. I've been talking to a lot of moms this week about what they've been telling their children. And so I'm trying to figure out and understand exactly how threatening some of these risks are that you described because of pornography. Has anyone ever been disabled, physically disabled and unable to go to work because of the health risks that come from pornography? I would encourage you to review the research that's cited in the analysis, which in fact doesn't, uh, does support the proposition that uh, some of those instances do occur. I've looked through it, but back to my specific question, has anyone ever been physically handicapped, like for example, confined to a wheelchair and unable to work as a result of porn being such a major health risk? With all due respect, I don't see what the relevance is. I'm not claiming that uh, people are being killed by pornography. What I'm claiming is that based on this research, there are negative health consequences. They may not rise to the consequence that you think they should be before we should pass a resolution on the floor. They happen to rise to the level of consequence that I believe are necessary to pass a resolution. The reason I'm asking some of these questions is, of course, we have very limited time in this process as far as what pieces of legislation we elevate and prioritize that are meaningful and important to the people of Florida. So I want to ask another health-related question. Has any first responder ever needed to seek counseling for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a result of their maybe addiction to pornography? Madam Speaker, I think this falls in line with a series of questions that I've already begun to answer, and I'll answer in the uh, same way I answered the previous questions. And if you have more questions along this line, I can tell you the answer is going to be the same. You can go ahead and ask them. But the answer to your question is, I don't know. There may be. It doesn't have to rise to that level, though, for us to understand that there's a problem going on out there. And unless we begin to talk about it, we're going to end up in a decade or two wondering what has happened and why we didn't talk about it sooner. And thank you, Chair Spano, for that answer. I agree with you. There's a lot of really important things that we should be talking about that we will regret if we don't address right now. I have another question because I think it's important that we are honest about where this, this line of questioning is going. Do you believe that identifying porn as a public health risk is more important than identifying gun violence as a public health crisis, especially after the events of this week and the events of June 12, 2016, where 49 people were murdered by gun violence at Pulse? The research that he's talking about, other media that's reported on this, has called it junk science. There's like 20 states so far that have either a bill or a resolution out into the world to get voted on, declaring porn a public health crisis. 
Not surprising given that the Republican National Committee's 2016 presidential platform included declaring porn as a public health crisis as part of their national platform. So we're seeing all these Republican representatives in different states introduce these bills. But all of these bills are mostly word for word out of the same organization. One of them is called Fight the New Drug. It's something that Danny Wilde mentions in his interview as one of the anti-porn organizations that kind of cherry picks interviews and bad stories out of the you know performer world to use as evidence that porn is a is a harm to both the the people that view it and the people that participate in it um, and all of them have the exact same language stemming from a bill that was signed into law in Utah where right. the people working on it were mostly members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. They were mostly Mormons. The legislature that wrote the bills had all a very heavy Mormon stance. So there's a lot of um, moralistic language. There's a lot of religious tones to the bills. And it's very interesting to see how they portray these fights in the media. Going state by state, they all use similar language. They're all talking about the hypersexualization of teens. A lot of the media coverage in different states talks about Porn's links to human trafficking and child pornography and violence and degradation against women. There's kind of a, a back and forth, though, on the way they connect it. So some states, their senators will connect it to the opioid crisis. They'll say, you know, this is just like the opioid crisis and that we need to invest money to get out there and tackle this problem because it's societal harm. While other state senators seem to... I don't want to say lessen that bond, but they liken the fight against porn to tobacco regulations, where they're saying it was a problem that we can kind of handle as a society, so we just need to rein it in a little bit and put some regulations on it. And, and you know, it can be just like smoking, like we can have porn, is the way I read those things. Like, mm-hmm. like legislators that, that will connect it to the opioid crisis are more calling for an end to porn, whereas I see like those that liken it to smoking or nicotine saying that we can have more manageable expectations of porn. Right. But either way, the comparison is being made to a highly addictive substance that mm-hmm. has been proven to kill people. Right. I mean, right. this is this is a really serious thing. So to have somebody say, I want to know how porn causes death, you know, to have that on the record, I think that was that was pretty brave yeah. to ask that question, especially because that meeting of, you know, the Florida legislature was happening like immediately after the school shooting, like mm-hmm. e- immediately after. And they're like, guns aren't a public health risk, but pornography is. That was actually what happened that day in the legislature. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not even like a cliche it's like it is a cliche to say americans are more worried about sex than they are about violence and yet at the same time we keep having it be played out and played out and played out um in our laws Mm -hmm. so i'm concerned about this because i do see it as a way for people to blame the creation of porn as opposed to the cultural values that make it impossible for people to raise sexually uh conversant children so you have a child who's gone through some good sex ed at home or gone through some good com- sex ed at school, some kind of comprehensive sex education program where they understand a lot about their bodies and about mm-hmm. adolescence and about uh, heterosexual 
and other <laughs> queer sex and mm -hmm. gay sex, and they've got an understanding that there's other ways to be sexual, blah, blah, blah. If you've got a kid who has that level of knowledge about sex and sexuality, that's considered a public health crisis. That's considered a problem. Mm -hmm. At this, And when they start being concerned that pornography is teaching our children about sexuality, they are not concerned that the schools aren't teaching. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not the same concern to them. Right. That's a huge problem. The fact that the schools are not doing comprehensive sex ed, that there's still so much shame in our culture that parents are unable to talk to their children mm -hmm. about sexuality. Of course the kids are going to get their information from porn. Right. Yeah, in all of these debates and, and the media around this, it, it seems the mission of this legislation is to help parents and, and community members talk to kids about porn, which seems like five conversations ahead of where we need to start. <laughs> like, like how about talk to kids about their bodies? And, yeah. <laughs> First. Yeah. Um, before you, 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 you start to have those larger conversations contextualized. Um, I've read this in a, in a few different articles about this of, you know, you don't teach kids how to drive by showing them the fast and the furious movies. Like you, you gotta, you gotta start, you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start your conversations in a different way. Um, so if we're, if we're upset that porn is teaching our kids sex ed, then maybe the problem is not the porn that is protected speech, but the way that we're talking to kids about sex and their bodies and relationships. Especially since kids are not the number one consumers of porn. That's another thing. They make it sound like the porn is getting marketed to the children. Right. And it's it's not. It's available mm -hmm. to them. But guess mm -hmm. what? Half of them are making it themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, they are making their own porn. They're doing it. It's just, it's like a, it's just, there's lots of logical flaws in this stuff. And it's, and it's really mm -hmm. frustrating. So the conversation gets oversimplified. The conversation gets... Uh, commodified in a certain way um, mm -hmm. to, against people in the sex industries who are making a living making movies. I mean, not for nothing, but, um, you know, people care about elections. Uh, Ross Spano, the representative who introduced this porn as a public health hazard legislation in Florida, is currently a candidate for Florida Attorney General. Mm -hmm. um, the person who introduced this legislation in the state of Tennessee, Senator May Beavers, is currently running for governor of that state. And there's a lot of, like, we, we see this often, right? Um, Senator Kamala Harris did it when she was attorney general running for, for U.S. Senate. Like, she ran with the trafficking fight against Backpage in her background to kind of boost her and that definitely you know many people say that that gave her a boost right. um so so it's you know if you're seeing this play out in your home state you know just take a look if those legislatures those those senators those state representatives are also running for something because that has a big impact in the types of legislation that they champion and put forward yeah i can't wait until we start seeing more sex workers and porn stars on those uh, on those tickets. I just think that that's going to be that's going to be a fun time. It's going to yeah. be a fun yeah. time. Uh, they're not ready. <laughs> speaking of speaking of porn stars and sex workers, our interview today is with Chris 
Zeishig, I'm doing my best with his last name. <laughs> he was a porn performer under the name Danny Wilde, and he's recently published a book called Body to Job with Rare Bird Books. It's a memoir. It's a collection of stories. It's a really beautifully written and poignant book about his time as a porn performer. He didn't have a predictable trajectory through the industry. There's a couple of ways in which his career deviated from what most people consider when they think about male porn performers. One major way is that he performed in both gay and straight porn, which most male performers don't cross over. So he's got a really interesting perspective on the industry, but also just on his own life, his own experience. So I got a chance to talk with him about the book and about his experience as a porn performer. Enjoy. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be sitting here with Chris Zeishig. Close? It's close, yeah. <laughs> Christopher Zeishig. Chris, you can call me Chris. I also used to be Danny Wilde, the porn guy. <laughs> Danny Wilde, the porn guy. Um, welcome to our conversation. We're really, um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm really excited to be talking with you about this new book that you have coming out, Body to Job. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of space for sex worker memoir. Um, sometimes people talk about like wanting to be the one or the only of a genre. And I just, I really feel like sex worker books, there should just be so many people don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, luckily I think there's more coming out now than ever before. I think it seems that way. Right. It does. It seems like we're really starting to have, uh, some space in publishing, which is really exciting. So let's yeah. talk about let's talk about this book a little bit. This is a really personal, intimate, graphic, whatever words you want. Like it's a it's a memoir that is um you know, doing a lot of really complex things. Tell me tell me about how it came about. Yeah, um initially I I didn't mean for this to be a memoir. I was I, I mean it's broken up into kind of short stories and essays. Uh, so the form is not as traditional, but, uh, I think while I was a performer in the adult industry, I just started kind of documenting my own personal, I don't know, like if I had a conflict going on or just a, a story I thought was interesting, I would try to turn it into like an essay or a story. And, uh, a few years later after I'd been out, um, I kind of came back to it and realized I might have something there in terms of a manuscript, but I had to kind of fill in the blanks and I looked at a lot of the stories I had and they, they were like coming from a very emotional place. So I tried to kind of stick with that and go back um, and kind of talk about my relationships um, and the kind of the highlights and pitfalls of my career. And then some of the struggles I had, um, leaving the adult industry or at least leaving the performative side and what do you feel what do you feel that this book is doing that's different from your other work what's what's new about this book oh it, it compared to my other work yeah i i mean it depends how long you've been like following me as a writer i used to have a blog where a few of these stories actually originated um and so in that way, maybe it's not doing a whole lot else. But it just, uh, I needed maybe to put closure on uh, 
the adult stuff because I've been writing about it for a very long time. And I don't know that the book in its entirety is going to be like a large departure thematically from some of my old material. But I think it's like very exhaustive. I, I would talk about it as like a very meticulous like uh, exercise in vulnerability for me. Um, but it's also, I don't know that I ever want to do that again. Because like <laughs> uh, it's so much about just kind of my emotional life and, and my uh, like sort of an introspection around my feelings, largely around sex work and my relationship to sex work. And, and romantic relationships are a big, big theme in the book, too. The, the sort of um, intensity with which you were connecting with your girlfriends for those for those years, um, the the passionate relationship rise and fall feels like a really important marker for you every few years. That's true. <laughs> um, I've changed everyone's name, so I hope no one gets really upset at me. But um, yeah, I think. The way that I related, I mean, the way I got into porn or at least into mainstream porn really had to do with my first long-term relationship. And um, I also feel like when I write about anything, I kind of start from a point of conflict. I don't know why, but I think that's like where the most interesting stories come from. And it is something that people always ask me about when I'm first asked about porn is kind of like, how do you date or how do you have a relationship while, while you're in the industry? And, um, you know, it's not like, I mean, there, these are very like up and down type of stories. Uh, there are a lot of really positive things in there, but I think, um, that that's interesting to other people. And it is the most that I have to talk about. I mean, the dynamics of those relationships were a large part of like my, my time and an adult. I don't know. Yeah. That's a question I get a lot too. And I think it, it's, it's, it's something that I really tried to have open conversations with my partners who are not sex workers. Cause actually the easiest is to be partnered with a sex worker in a way, right? There's certain things you don't have to explain about like what's going on with your body or you, your energy or your whatever. But when I partner with somebody who's not a sex worker, one of the things that's really hard for them to understand is that like sex work sex does feel different from I'm in love with you sex or, you know, like that there and that when you have those little blurry moments where you're doing something in a sex work context, but you're really enjoying it, that that can be something that we both celebrate, feel good about, think is wonderful and can get kind of confused by too. Um, and I really appreciated how you represented that in Body to Job. I felt like there were um, a number of, of moments where that sort of gray area that, you know, people outside the sex industries really fear for us. Right. <laughs> that, you, that you were able to represent those as just being like kind of um, just as important and human and, 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 um, and developmentally sound. <laughs> as they as they are so I just yeah first of all thank you for that I appreciated that um and I also really felt like you were you were very careful to represent yourself as a person who has like a kind of ongoing dialogue with your own body you know there is 
there were scenes where you were very present with your body and then there are scenes where you're really dissociated or in, in a lot of pain. And to be able to kind of watch someone come in and out of their body like that also felt really realistic for me about what that feels like to, to do sex work in a in a way that's like, oh, this is a great job. And then other times where you're like, this is trauma. You know, <laughs> like right. I, that was really cool too. Yeah, I, I mean, I've this kind of conversation comes up a lot now with, with press around doing a book like this because I think people have, there are like two uh, extremes and people who feel that like sex work is all trauma and it is all kind of uh, you being coerced into these situations. And then on the other side, primarily from people coming from like the leftist pro-porn area is like, well, like sex work is 100% like empowering. Um, but I think the reality is that we kind of live in the middle most of the time. Um, and I, I think that's probably the most dishumanizing way to talk about it is to make it really clear that it's a job. Cause like no one goes to work anywhere else where they're like, I love this every day. I'm getting up every day of my life and this is amazing. And you're like hundred percent on, but like, unless you really hate your job, you, you like at least like parts of it. You know what I mean? And and so I think you can you can kind of um, talk about that in a sex work context in which, you know, there may be like really great reasons why you got into this or at least stayed in it and you can still have like a really bad day at work. Right. Yeah. But, but without any kind of supportive group of friends or safe space to do that because of the stigma it's really hard to to think that through and I think that's that's something I'd like to ask you about a little bit is the way that um you have sort of a turn in in the book from being somebody who thinks of themselves as like temporarily doing this thing that you keep pretty secret to to maybe recognizing that you've internalized the stigma about it that you've had your own sense of um, shaming other people in it or, or thinking of yourself as like not a lifer, you know, right, right. <laughs> and, um, and that there was a turn for you of becoming a little bit more identified with, with it, um, calling yourself a sex worker at a certain point and seeing yourself as somebody who can do this with a certain amount of like pride and dignity, as opposed to feeling like, ah, oh, this is just this thing I do on the side. Um, sure. so I'd love to hear a little bit about that change. For you. Well, yeah, as you said, I didn't get into porn um, with this idea that it was going to be my job. And I find that, I don't know how typical that is, but if there's at least a good amount of sex workers who aren't like striving towards this initially. Um, but I think the, the ability to kind of own it came uh, once I had graduated school and I was met with kind of the financial reality of this job that I initially used to pay my way through through college um, was paying me more than the jobs I could get out of college. And uh, also, I started to, like the longer I was in it, I met people who were more into the politics of sex work. Uh, for example, our mutual friend, Tristan Taramino who was like doing all this stuff that she labeled as feminist porn and so forth. And, and then getting kind of um, opened up to, 
to what that was, I also got opened up to the opposition. So I had, I had always experienced kind of like a, a little bit of stigma, primarily from family members who just thought that this was like, not, um, not like an upstanding thing to do, you know what I mean? But they kind of put up with it because I was using it to get through college. Like no one disowned me or whatever, but it was very much like this unspoken uh, thing that, that once I got out of school, like I needed to do something else. But then I started to kind of uh, hear more about the anti-porn left and the anti-porn feminism that was out there that really just thinks that um, <laughs> kind of like all sex work is violence against women, that all women are coerced into doing this and often physically coerced. And then I think that what was really kind of um, upsetting to me is that essentially they quite equated like all male sex workers uh, who were having sex with women as rapists. Um, and that was not my experience of this at all. Like I got into into porn as a male submissive, you know what I mean? Like, and also initially I'd, I'd done quite a bit of gay porn and to kind of just black and white say that men are coercing women and men are raping women and just abusing them. And that's all that porn is. Um, I had to kind of like figure out a way to talk about that or talk about my experience. That was kind of the opposite of that. And not, not to say that no women are ever coerced or that there is, especially that there isn't any like capitalist exploitation. Of course that exists in porn and in any, any line of work. Um, and of course there are people who are more or less bad who, <laughs> who end up being producers or directors. But I think you'll find that that's not the majority and that you can't stay in and have people, have agents continue to work with you if you're, if you're doing that on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, um, a certain, I started to find a certain personal validation and in getting involved in that political conversation and kind of, um, broadcasting, uh, a kind of a pro porn point of view. Yeah. And it's interesting how, you know, people who are not in the culture, who are not, who are not doing the work or are not affiliated with anyone doing the work. Um, like this is one of those arenas where people feel really comfortable having very strong opinions about something they have no contact with at all, Yeah, you know, and, and how, yeah, like there's a, there's a sense of, um, of, of voicelessness that is changing where we're finally starting to have some more space to, um, to represent our, ourselves and our own experiences. Um, I, I think your, I think your experience of homophobia in the book is really interesting too. Like, you know, on the one hand you're being told that you're a rapist for having sex with women. And then on the other hand, you're being told you can't have any more sex with women because you had sex with men. <laughs> like there's, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of cacophony around you <laughs> um, with regards to what your, what your role actually was and how you see yourself. So um, you identify in the book as bisexual. Is that still kind of how you're thinking about it or how, how do you, how are you working um, with that now? I would say that my sexuality is more or less like a chameleon. I, I would say like at this point in my life, looking back and, and seeing also myself in my current relationship, you know, I tend really to 
to date women long term. And so I could probably go through life like just acting like a, a hetero dude and no one would really question that um, unless they go on the internet and see like a dick in my mouth. But um, Unless they happen to do that. <laughs> yeah, but like I also wouldn't say that I was like gay for pay and, and especially a lot of my earlier writing and so forth deals with kind of uh, male desire for other men and I certainly enjoy having sex with other men. I feel like um, it's complicated to talk about, especially in regards to my career, um, but essentially the adult industry in the United States uh, is broken up very distinctly uh, into the gay industry and the straight industry. And I didn't know that in the beginning because I don't, there's no one to really teach you about porn until you're in it. Um, but I had done some gay scenes and some straight scenes. And uh, then I was told <laughs> about this kind of divide that, that if you're gonna play devil's advocate for the straight people, um, it's about testing practices, meaning that straight porn predominantly does not use condoms, but they test, they require testing. Uh, it used to be every 30 days, now I believe it's every two weeks. Um, and gay porn historically has not required testing, but requires condoms. Um, so the fear from the straight side of the industry is that there are men with HIV performing in gay porn uh, and just hiding their status. And that if you perform with other men, that you're basically at risk for um, getting HIV into the straight talent pool. In uh, this, you know, this fear is exacerbated for a couple of uh, instances in which guys who've worked in both gay and straight porn, they're given the name crossover. Uh, they've come up with HIV and the, the whole, there's like a moratorium on the industry. Basically no one can work for a few weeks until they figure out what's going on. Everyone has to get retested. You got to figure out like who had sex with who. And, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, so at one point I had to basically pick a side. I was dating a woman um, she had a lot of stuff around that too. I, I found, especially in my earlier relationships that, you know, a lot of women have hangups, uh, with guy, with their male partners having sex with other men. So, uh, yeah, pretty early on into my twenties, it kind of went down a very straight path. And then I would, you know, be single for a little while and, and start dating guys here and there. But then I feel like they would also have kind of the opposite fear like bi guys are all straight actually and you're just kind of like a tourist um which sometimes i feel that way and i don't know if it's because enough people have said that to me or whatever um but i don't know it just doesn't the sexual identity issue doesn't feel that important to me anymore i feel like i used to want to really hold on to like a queer or bi identity and at this point, I don't really, I mean, I don't know. You can see me getting fucked on the ass on the internet. So that's like, whatever. I'm dating a woman. I like it. Whatever you want to call that, it's fine. Yeah. I encounter that a lot too. Um, 
you know, like dating women who are afraid that because I have enjoyed sex with men and have been in relationships with men, you know, that I, that I'll default to hetero, that I'll default to a hetero relationship. Um, and that there's some, there's some way in which, you know, that's, that's programmed in or something. And it's interesting. It always, it always strikes me as like a kind of, like a, like a, an interesting complex of social fear around um, homophobia and stigma and, you know, really needing to know like who's on my side and like who's going to have my back when push comes to shove and all that. People feeling traumatized when they get broken up with, <laughs> especially when they feel like they may have gotten broken up with because of their gender identity. Um, that's a com it's a complicated thing for someone to be experiencing like a personal fear that their partner is going to somehow betray them by wanting to have sex with someone of another gender. Like, I just think that's a really, I don't know. It, 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 because I don't have the same kind of experience with it. I'm always like, isn't the, isn't the betrayal just that like, I don't want you <laughs> or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think in very mar in more marginalized communities, it becomes like uh, a more, they take, I don't know. I find that this happens just from my own experience that it becomes more like about their identity or something. Mm -hmm. I like that. Just sort of like a, why am I even asking the sexual identity question still? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still relevant, I guess. I just, I don't know. I end up talking about it a lot and I feel almost just stupid because it's now like a, it's become like a kind of clickbait or SEO term, like bisexuality. And I don't know. I mean, sure. Like I'll own it if you want me to, but I don't care that much. Then I don't care that much. Okay. I want to get back to the book a little bit. You said that you feel like this, this new book body to job is sort of exhaustive, that there's a way that it, it maybe is a culmination for you of writing about, these super vulnerable, really personal stories about being in the industry. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe that's because you, you are writing about your exit too. Can you say a little bit more about your exit? Yeah. Um, again, something I've talked a bit about, but I, I like most, like most men in the adult industry, uh, I took erectile dysfunction drugs as performance enhancers like Viagra, Cialis, I even injected sometimes. Um, and that's not because I was unable to achieve erection with my partners on camera. It's a matter of consistency. Um, I think that most men don't understand this until they're in front of a camera with like a crew waiting on them to, to get an erection and with a partner that may or may not uh, express any interest in them that, it's difficult, uh, and it's also, even if it's not difficult to get an erection, it may be difficult to sustain one for several hours uh, and, and to do all these kind of sexual acrobatics. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know who told me this in the beginning, but it just became very clear, like, every guy, or almost every guy takes drugs. So from age 19 to 28, I was swallowing like Cialis like multiple times a week, which is not normal. And I ended up in the hospital a few times uh, for priapism, I think is how it's pronounced. It's basically when your erection won't subside after a number of hours and um, they have to bleed your penis. Um, and the last time that happened, 
a doctor in the emergency room just told me, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to run the risk of uh, creating scar tissue in your penis and not being able to achieve natural erection. And to me, that was that was just kind of like, well, this isn't worth it. Um, and I, I quit literally the next day. It was a very kind of devastating time in my life. But um, that was, yeah, it was just a, from one day to the next, it was over. Yeah. But it doesn't read like a moralistic tale still. And it doesn't read necessarily like a judgment on anyone else who's choosing to um, to use performance enhancing drugs. And that's, that's a very, very tricky tone to, to find. Yeah. Well, I don't really, I mean, look, I, I still think that you could probably do it in a safe way. Like doctors never told me this was addictive. I think it was kind of psychologically addictive to me in a way that meant like, I've been taking this so long. Like, what if I stop? I don't believe that I can still do this job. And I don't, I kind of still feel that way, um, which is why I don't do it anymore. But um, I don't know, like you do what you do. Professional athletes inject steroids to do their job. I mean, sex workers are, are akin to that, I think. We put our bodies through a lot. Um, and yeah, I have no judgment of anyone else who does whatever to get in the industry. I think some of my interviews have been like, turned on their head or cherry picked to kind of have an anti-porn stance. I really have nothing against performers at all. And I think if you want to do this, like all the more power to you. Um, but you know, I'm, I feel like I'm not the type of person who can do this without drugs or at least do the on camera stuff. I continue to do some sex work afterwards even, uh, and you know, that was difficult for other reasons. I think it was just, kind of emotional for me. Uh, it became a lot of emotional labor that I wasn't used to, and I don't really like doing that. So at this point, I basically stopped, except for like, really, I don't know, just like kind of like online communication or selling little solo clips or whatever, things like that, that it's, it's not um, that stressful for me. Yeah, make it work for you. Yeah. So. You're mentioning some of the other media that you've done around this book and, and your others. And I'm, I'm curious how you, you know, if, if on the dresser is a sex worker, queer sex educator led piece, okay. of, piece of media, meaning yeah. like this is where you get to correct, correct the record. <laughs> if you want to, if there's anything that you feel like, you know what, this is a way that I get misunderstood or this is something that people are going after that I think is wrong. Or like, if you want to um, take some space uh, for that. Yeah. Well, like in the year or two after my retirement, I did do a number of interviews about, um, about leaving and why I left and basically just saying what I told you right now. And, you know, that gets circulated through a bunch of other blogs that don't actually speak to me. Um, and, I've noticed like there's that website fight the new drug, which is like a really anti-porn, like, like they consider porn the new drug and it's an anti-porn organization. And they basically cherry picked one of my interviews to see how like I was traumatized and how porn hurts men too and all of this stuff. And um, 
it's like, <laughs> I mean, not that I think that that was a great experience to go through, but on the other hand, I'm still, I'm still not out there like trying to get guys to not do porn or have this anti-porn stance. I mean, if I don't even know that I really have a stance. I mean, my whole position on porn right now is more or less that it's just boring. And I think my whole, um, my whole position, I don't know if this is why I wrote the book. I, I don't think it is, but I think if you're going to walk away with something, it's just to think about it as a very like mundane thing. I mean, of course there's like eroticism tied up in that and we're selling a fantasy. And of course I would like you to continue purchasing it from, from me and my friends. But, um, I find like the mechanics of all of this to be just kind of mundane. And I don't know. I, I don't think it's to say that it's this whole traumatic experience. It's definitely not true either. Yeah. I mean, I can see how that position that you're taking could also be cherry picked from the kind of second wave feminist perspective to say like, look, the magic from sex is gone because there's, there's this, here's this guy who's had all of this sex saying, eh, it's kind of boring now. Well, well, I still have a personal relationship though, in which I have wonderful sex all the time. Sex is not destroyed for me in any sense. I think, um, but you know, like I still half of the, like I'm a professional editor right now, video editor, and I think like half of my clients are from the adult industry, and so I spend a lot of time editing porn, and uh, so I, I spend a lot of time with pornography uh, without arousal, in which, you know, it is like really, it's like watching a nail go into a wall, because if you're not, because like porn is a kind of participatory action, like most people are watching it in a state of arousal, and in which that you know, does something for them. But if you have to kind of intellectualize it or just be on, like if you're a crew member on a porn set, it really is, it's like being at a basketball game, but like not caring about sports. You know what I mean? You just need to like light it and get a good shot. And that's basically what I mean by that. Um, but I can still go home and have like really great sex with my partner. I mean, to, to have like a moment of in, intimacy, like that has nothing to do with like, <laughs> my job or whatever or even if it's not intimate if I just if I was still single I, I mean I've gone out on one night stands it's a lot of great sex with people and even some of my sex and porn was amazing I don't want to say that all porn is just like this mechanical thing I mean a lot of it is but you get crushes on people you get like you fall in love for a day all of this stuff happens I talk about that in the book um but like like anything, I don't think you can maintain a consistent like state of, of love and lust if you're doing something professionally, like every day. You have to sometimes just phone it in. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite, or if that's if that's too overwhelming to think, what's one of the um, stories, anecdotes, or characters from the book that you're really proud of? Oh man! Or that just feels really good to you to have. You know, you know it's getting published. <laughs> I gotta go at, come at this from like two different angles. I mean, I think there's the story of like my second long-term relationship that I think is probably the most sweet in there, which is kind of like some nice stuff. But 
I think the stories maybe that I'm most proud of are towards the end. And that's just from like a literary perspective, because I tend to gravitate towards work with a very like pessimistic uh, aesthetic. And um, it's not like these stories were, it's not like I'm trying to send a message or anything, but I think the book kind of does end in a negative place. And that's not necessarily representative of my life right now. It was just um, at the time of writing them, they were real to me. And they and they actually veer a little bit from reality, the last few stories in the book. Uh, because um, I think growing up, I, have, I had a relationship to kind of like horror films and heavy metal music and things like that. Um, that deal a lot with theatricality and whenever I go into the the like darker parts of my life or what I'm feeling um, it becomes more fun or at least it's easier to uh, externalize the experience into something that's more physical and often more violent uh, and I think with writing I would rather it be kind of more entertaining at this point in my life. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to, I mean, that's something I enjoy. That's kind of like my art at this point. So, so I like the stories that kind of go to the extreme. And so the last few, I think, deal with things like that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're like representative of my feelings on a regular basis. So how can people find you, find your work, be be in touch, find the book, give us some info? Okay. Um, well, you, the easiest way to find me on the internet is probably uh, Twitter or Instagram. I still use my porn name because people know that, and it's easier to spell than Syshek. So my porn name is Danny Wild. That's D-A-N-N-Y-W-Y-L-D-E. So it's at Danny Wild on Twitter or Instagram. If you want to get give my name a try, you could also go to ChristopherSyshig.com. But there are links on both the Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on, at, as Christopher Syshig on Facebook, though I doubt you will. So Body to Job by yeah. Christopher Zyshig, and it's getting it's getting released right now. This is like, this is a brand new baby. This is February 13th. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Welcome to the world, book. <laughs> it was great to talk with you. Uh, you too. You're listening to On the Dresser. I am Danny Cruz. I'm sitting with Vanessa Carlisle. Hi. That was Danny Wild. That was. I really enjoyed his candor in that interview, especially when it comes to like his career. In his part of his interview, he talks about that, like you know, having good days and bad days, and and he said, you know, he lives in the middle, like him and his fellow porn performers. They live in the middle, like most days. It's he, he talked about it being the most humanizing thing that, like, yeah, he doesn't have to be an always happy, and he's definitely not an always raping and being raped like that's not his reality um but when you see people having these broader conversations when you see people trying to legislate and include stories from from the porn industry um both and both sides are guilty of it um i see it in in sex worker rights like wanting to having this 
desire to elevate only the good um, or only the super content and not really seeing the people that are on the middle, much less, you know, the other side. You know, people in the anti-trafficking realm don't want to acknowledge the people who are content with sex work, the people who are fine just doing this day in, day out. And there's a a tendency of um, people who are for sex workers' rights to distance themselves from trafficking conversations because they don't they don't want to be seen as giving in at all to any of the negative like they want to maintain that it's empowering and that it's a job and that it's a thing and so i i feel like on both sides there's a there's kind of a everyone in your corner yeah. no one's allowed to be in the middle there's a lot of erasure of complexity happening on both sides, which is why having the longer conversations, the books, the memoirs, the personal experiences is so, is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Woo, that was a good one. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on On the Dresser today. We want to know what's on your dresser. Send us an email. Send us an email about what's on your dresser. On the dresser at gmail.com. Follow us on iTunes, on Stitcher, uh, on SoundCloud. Please do subscribe, rate, review, and share. It makes a huge difference for us. We are looking to grow in 2018, and we need your help. Send us your stories. Send us your questions. Send us your ideas for episodes. We listen, and we care about you as our listeners. We, we want to interact with you. So email us on thedresser at gmail.com. Yeah, we are a podcast, so uh, you can write to us or you can open up the voice memo app on your device and and shoot us a note on anything you've heard on any of our episodes. Um, You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, at On The Dresser. We're also on Twitter, at On The Dresser. Our production team is Lauren Kiley, Danny Cruz, and Dr. Vanessa Carlisle. All the music you heard for this episode was produced by Lou Gomez. Uh, Vanessa, where can people find you? It's best to find me on Twitter at V Carlisle, V C A R L I S L E. And how about you, Danny? Uh, best to find me on the Twitter. You can find me clothed on Twitter at a Danny Boy uh, or disrobed at it's Danny Cruz. All right, y'all. All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good, good night, night and, and good, good fuck. fuck.